Welcome to Capital Link's Trending News Podcast Series. In this podcast series, we discuss with company management on recent news and announcements that they have made. I am Nicolas Bornolis, President of Capital Link, and I'm delighted that we have with us today members of the senior management of the New York Stock Exchange listed Global Shipleys, GSL. We have namely Mr. Ian Weber, Chief Executive Officer, Mr. Thomas Lister, Chief Commercial Officer and Head of ESG, and Mr. Tassos Charopoulos, Chief Financial Officer. Our discussion will uh, touch upon the company's recently announced Q2 2023 results, but will mainly focus on GSL's development, strategy, and the container shipping sector outlook. A quick reminder of our disclaimer that podcasts are provided purely for informational and educational purposes. They do not constitute investment advice or advice of any kind, and CapitalLink bears no responsibility for them. Global Shipleads is a leading independent owner of container ships with a diversified fleet of mid-sized and smaller container ships, which it charters out under fixed-rate charters to top-tier container liner companies. It is listed, as I mentioned, on the New York Stock Exchange under the ticker GSL. And at the end of the second quarter of 2023, GSL owned 68 container ships ranging from 2,200 TU to 11,000 TU. And now let's uh, start with our first question. As you described in your, uh, by the way, I will be asking the questions and then the members of the management team will be addressing them as they see fit. As you described in your Q2 and the six month uh, results of 2023, microeconomic uncertainties continued during this time. The container charter market, even though it is showing signs of normalization, still it lacks direction. Yet you reported strong earnings with revenues of 162 million, net income of 75.5 and EBITDA of 108.2. And even more important, you continued with your share buybacks and quarterly dividend of 37 and a half cents per share. So can you share with us the cornerstones of your strategy operating in this cyclical industry? Uh, Sure. Uh, But before I do that, just thanks to you, Nicholas, and to Capital Link for inviting us uh, to to this podcast, um, which is uh, our first one with you. Um, I'm sure there'll be many more to come. Um, back back to and thank you for the introduction, which summarised global ship lease uh, very well. Um, the, the cornerstones of our, our strategy uh, there are six or seven um, that are that are worthy of note. I'll try not to go into too much detail, um, as as my colleagues can amplify as and when um, uh, with with other questions. I'm sure you're going to ask. But number one, we focus, as you said, on container ships. Nothing else. Uh, number two, again, as you said, um, w- within that, we look at mid-size and smaller ships. As you said, our fleet ranges from 2,200 TU to uh, 11,000 TU. And we focus on existing tonnage, not new buildings. Um, uh, our legacy predecessor company, one of them, has engaged in new buildings, but we don't believe that's appropriate for global ship lease at, at this time. So container ships, mid-sized and smaller existing tonnage. We look to secure decent charters, um, which means decent rates, decent durations with decent counterparties, 
and multi-year if possible, because we're risk averse. We love forward visibility on cash flow. Uh, we have something like $2 billion of charter cover going forward spread out over 2.3 years. Um, that, that allows us to sleep well at night. We have a dynamic and disciplined, uh, both of those words are very important, dynamic and disciplined approach to capital allocation. Uh, and the calls on our uh, capital are debt amortization. Uh, we, we aggressively amortize debt. We have wasting assets. We think it's right that debt should be amortized rapidly as well. Uh, CapEx, um, both on the existing fleet, routine CapEx, dry docks, discretionary investment in improving fuel efficiency, say, are very relevant today. And then CapEx for growth. Uh, we've announced after um, an 18-month uh, uh, wait for markets to normalize uh, the acquisition of four, eight and a half thousand TU ships earlier this year. Um, uh, back to capital allocation, cash on the balance sheet for resilience, particularly when times are uncertain, and for flexibility to allow us to move quickly if there are investment opportunities. And then finally, and by no means uh, least, return of capital to shareholders. Our sustainable $1.50 a year dividend on our common, uh, plus on an opportunistic basis, the buyback of stock. We'll come back to that, I'm sure, but we've bought back $47 million worth over the last 18 months or so. Uh, and uh, with a recent uh, new authorization, we have $43 million of authorized capacity uh, to, uh, to go and opportunistically repurchase further stock. The, the final area I'll mention is, is the balance sheet. Um, uh, we, as I said, we're cautious, we're prudent. Uh, we, we want to maintain a cautious and prudent balance sheet. Uh, and as a measure of that, um, given our strong earnings uh, record uh, recently and our aggressive management of the balance sheet, uh, we not only have very low cost of debt, uh, but we also have very low financial leverage, which is currently standing at about 1.9 times. So I think I think that covers the main points. But if Tom Tassos, if I've forgotten anything, please do chip in. I think that's a good summary. If I can uh, ask you, uh, Ian, uh, because you, you painted, I think the cornerstone of the whole uh, thing is uh, the predictability and stability of your earnings based on the charter capital that you have uh, mm -hmm. already put in place. So what is exactly the contract cover that you have right now? And uh, what does it cover in terms of uh, uh, of fixed expenses, capex, and so on? Oh sure, yeah. It's uh, we have a couple of billion dollars worth of contract cover going forward on the on the sixty eight ships. Um, on average, uh, that that goes out uh, two point three years. So on average, um, through into if I get my maths right, late twenty twenty five. Uh, in days covered, we're pretty much done for 2023. There's a possibility of, of one ship coming open. I think one ship coming open later in the year. And for 2024, um, I think we're over 80% covered on, a, on an ownership days basis. That uh, contract cover, uh, or the cash flow derived from it, obviously covers operating costs, uh, but also provides um, cash flow to service debt and to cover our dividend um, uh, and some opportunistic buybacks of, of, uh, of shares, along with regular routine capex 
um, through, I think, until the end of 2024 into 2025. So uh, going back to this cautious, prudent, uh, we want to be able to sleep well at night approach, we're very comfortable with the financial position we're in at the moment. Not at all complacent. Um, uh, there's macroeconomic uncertainty out there. Uh, but but we're we're currently um, well covered going forward. Thank you. Uh, so now, if I can move, um, obviously this shorter cover that we have and the minimal resorting activity looking forward insulates you to a large extent from uh, market volatility. Uh, and now let, let's move to uh, to the dividend. The quarterly dividend of thirty seven and a half cents, which is about a dollar fifty annually translates at current share price levels to a, a yield annualized of about 8%. So what are your plans regarding the quarterly dividend uh, and uh, the share buybacks? Both of them are quite important for your shareholders. And uh, I read you just uh, authorized uh, another uh, 40 million buyback program. Okay, uh, let me give it a, a try here. So as Ian have actually mentioned, capital allocation is very important for us. So part of the leveraging, building assets, of course, the return to our shareholders. Uh, on the dividend side, we have mentioned clearly, and since we have initiated the, the dividend, is that for us it is important to be sustainable throughout the years. We always reassessed uh, according to our cash flows and mainly our contracted cash flows. Uh, and on each period, we reassess uh, the dividend where we stand. Now, on the share buybacks, it's something that we have used since actually the third quarter of 2021. We have paid 47 million till now, 17 of them the last six months. And we have authorized again another 40 million, reaching to the total authorization to 43 million in order for us to continue opportunistically buyback shares when it's appropriate and when we believe that we need to, to support our share. I don't know, Ian, Tom, if you want to add anything else on that. I think that's a good summary, Tassos. Nothing further from me. So let me uh, continue on this path. Um, you are one of the few shipping companies with a public credit rating, a debt credit rating. So in Q2 of 2023, actually your credit uh, rating was upgraded. Obviously a, a positive development. So what are the implications of this for uh, GSL's shareholders and for the company itself? At least from our point of view, uh, all implications are positive. So uh, we had currently uh, Moody's S&P and the new private placement notes that we have put in place in May 2022 uh, are being reviewed by Kroll. Reality is, is that it gives us a lot of optionality uh, it opens uh, a number of uh, debt funds uh, and our access to, to cheap uh, capital and to cheap debt, uh, like the private placement that we have done in May 2022. Uh, and it also gives uh, at least a more, how can I say that, a more independent view of the company also to other investors besides the debt finance. It's, it's, it, it's, it's worth just adding to, to, to that, that um, we have, um, most of our debt is floating rate, some of it's fixed, but the vast majority of our debt is floating rate. That said, um, we have interest rate caps in place, um, which uh, on, on a LIBOR basis, capped LIBOR at 75 basis points. 
So clearly they're in the money at the moment. I think on a software basis, it's point it's 64 basis points. Correct. Um, so, uh, and that covers all of our floating rate debt up, uh, up until the end of 2026. So we're completely insulated uh, from um, uh, market volatility and interest rates. And overall, our cost of debt is a shade over 4.5% at, at, at the moment. So you have good insulation in terms of market volatility on the revenue side and uh, with uh, the uh, proactive uh, risk management, you have also minimized it on the expense side for the interest rate. Mm -hmm. So let, let me uh, turn now to fleet development. Uh, during the second quarter of 2023, you got delivery of four 8,500 vessels that uh, you uh, mentioned you acquired. These were built in 2003 and 2004, expanding your fleet to 68 container ships. Now, how is this acquisition accretive, given that these are 18, 19 year old ships? Uh, does the market prefer younger ones? Um, maybe I'll take the lead on this, Nicholas. Thanks, thanks for the question. Um, you're absolutely right. These are 18 to 19 year old ships, and and that's actually by design. Um, so I think we have to put this in the context of one of the big developments uh, in the market at the moment, which is the drive towards decarbonization. And it's still unclear what will become the standard clean fuels of the future, and, and as a result, the standard propulsion technologies of the future. And you have to remember that uh, ships are 30-year assets. So when you're, you're buying a, a brand new ship, you're taking a 30-year view on um, the viability of that ship going forward. On the other hand, if you go for midlife and older ships, uh, such as these, um, you're able to take um, a far more conservative view on residual value risk. So if I, if I run you through the sort of the, the economics of, of this transaction, hopefully it will come a little bit clearer. So we managed to buy these ships for a combined price of 123 million. And, and for each of these, these numbers I'm about to mention, I'm, I'm talking about the aggregate numbers across all four ships rather than on a per ship basis. So we bought four ships for 123 million and we have uh, charters attached to those ships at the time of acquisition, which are two years firm followed by one year at the option of, of the charterers. If we just take the firm period, um, we calculate that there's roughly 76 to 77 million of contracted EBITDA implicit in those, those time charters. And then if you take the scrap value of the ships, and I think we've put this into the public domain, it's roughly you know, a, little, a little below 38,000 uh, lightweight tons, which is the steel in the ship. If you multiply that by $400 per lightweight ton, which is a sort of long-term average uh, scrap value, you get an aggregate scrap value of approximately 60 million, six zero million. So adding together the scrap value plus the contracted EBITDA, you get a number of 137 million, which is already in excess of the purchase price. Um, and then obviously, you know, we didn't buy these ships with a view to simply um, recycling them at the end of the, uh, of, of the charters. Absolutely not. They're very well-specified ships. They have very high reefer content. 
Um, they already have um, very attractive energy enhancing features, um, some eco retrofits, and they are of a size category, 8,500 TU, which we think is going to be extremely attractive in the charter market going forward. So they've got very, very good onward charter prospects. So what we're, we're trying to stitch together here is a very um, limited residual value risk, which is largely covered to the downside by the scrap value on the assets. Um, combining that with, with very strong cash flows right out of the gate, you know, it's, it's a low three times multiple on a purchase price to EBITDA multiple uh, uh, basis. Um, the downside cover with scrap I've already talked about, and um, what we think is attractive onward earnings potential. And then if you combine that with the extremely low cost of debt um, that both Ian and Tassos have, have talked about already in here, there's actually headroom under our uh, interest rate caps, which Tassos can perhaps talk to you about. Clearly, the levered returns implicit in such a transaction are extremely attractive. So low risk very attractive return profile and not forcing us to take a very long-term view on what will be the fuels of the future. Thank you very much. A few points on that also, Nikos, is just to mention is that the contracted EBITDA of this transaction is almost equal to the loan that we have uh, taken from the bank. It's around 76 million. And regarding the headroom, the interest rate cap that we have put in place end of 2021 and beginning of 2022 have actually given us uh, along with the refinance that we have done uh, all this time, uh, a very big headroom in order for us to be able to facilitate uh, cheap finance in our transactions. So we have actually used the 76 million of this headroom right now. And we have more or less another 120, 125 uh, million of headroom for future refinances on a volatile rate or new finances. Thank you for all these details. Uh... Let me move now. You, you open the door to the next question. Uh, Ian already provided a lot of uh, insight that um, you continue to focus on uh, the smaller and mid-segment market, uh, that you continue to focus just on container ships. Uh, so if I understand, no plans to diversify into other sectors or go into new buildings. But let me ask you, given the overall drive to decarbonization, what particular steps are you taking to uh, enhance the fleet, given that uh, we have all these new regulations coming uh, coming up? Sure. Um, again, I'll, I'll take the lead on this, and I'm sure both Tassos and Ian will jump in if, if they have um, other thoughts. So um, effectively, we're, we're following a, a two- or three-pronged strategy, the first prong of which is working on upgrading the existing ships in our fleet with energy efficient uh, retrofits. Uh, that's something that we do in conjunction with the charters themselves, because after all, we provide the ships and the crew, but it's actually the charterers, our customers, who determine the operating profile of those ships. So if you're retrofitting a ship to make it more energy efficient, you need to retrofit it towards the expected operating profile of that ship, number one. Number two, um, still in the context of retrofits, anything that makes a ship more efficient is actually driving um, fuel economies that are enjoyed by the charterer. So we focus upon um, a collaborative approach with our, our charterers, both to design the retrofits and 
to fund the economics of those retrofits because it's only equitable that the party that draws the economic benefit also bears um, a high degree of the economic burden. So it's a very collaborative approach. Um, the second element uh, is related to the operation of the ships themselves. Um, you can operate ships far more efficiently. And again, this is from a, a fuel consumption and thus emissions perspective. If you can cement the cooperation between the operator, the charterers, and the owner of the assets. And the best way to do that, uh, we think, is to capture data um, as close to live as possible from the ships on an automated fashion in a way that can be shared not only with us, but also with our charterers in order to optimize the operation of the assets themselves. We think actually in the near term, that's probably where the biggest decarbonization gains are to be had from data rather than from the, the physical retrofits, although we're, we're doing both. And then a third prong um, is uh, biofuels. Um, we're working on equipping our fleet to, to be able to um, use low carbon biofuel blends. Uh, that takes a little bit of time, but it's something that we're working on. And again, it has to be driven by the preferences of the charterers because they're the guys buying, buying the fuels. So if biofuels are important to our charterers, they're important to us. And then finally, um, although this is, I suppose, more in the strategic rather than tactical camp, we think that uh, carbon capture is going to be a key transition tool for the industry. Now, there are all sorts of challenges associated with capturing carbon dioxide aboard a moving asset. Uh, but nevertheless, we think it's something that, that bears serious investigation. And actually, we have invested, co-invested in what we think is an interesting uh, carbon capture startup, and we're exploring other elements too. I'll, I'll pause there, Nicholas, in case you have follow-up questions. Well, I wanted to say that uh, one of the statements that I have heard that I think is uh, it's great is that uh, the ultimate fuel for decarbonization is cooperation. And I'm delighted to hear exactly uh, the collaborative approach that you are implementing between uh, GSL and your charters, because clearly that speeds up the process. It um, shares the risk. So uh, I think that's a key uh, component of your overall strategy. But staying on, uh, on, on the fleet um, development, you mentioned in your presentation that reefer cargo is one of the fastest growing and most lucrative cargo segments. So how are you positioned in that market? Again, I think that's, that's probably one for me, Nicholas. Um... <laughs> well, I suppose the short answer is well positioned, we, we think. Um, that probably sounds a little bit glib. It's, it's not supposed to. Um, we are conscious of the importance of, of reefer cargo. Uh, we are conscious that it's probably one of the more lucrative as well as faster growing um, elements of containerized cargo um, for our customers. So in, in assembling our existing fleet, high reefer capacity aboard our ships has been an important consideration and it's also an important consideration for acquisitions that we may look at going forward and it's not only um reefer capacity on the water today it's also the ability to upgrade or upsize the reefer capacity on our ships and a big uh, element there is is figuring out what is the the power generating capacity of the ships that we buy and is there sufficient headroom 
in that onboard generating capacity to allow us to upsize reefers going forward. And I think that's something that our ship managers, um, Technomar, have been extremely effective at, which is essentially optimizing pre-existing assets, not only for reefers, but also in other elements as well. So that's really the, the simple answer. We focus on high reefer capacity vessels. And as a result, we like to think at least that we should be well positioned um, to provide the sorts of ships that our customers want uh, going forward on that front. Thank you. Now, staying on, uh, on, on the sector and uh, on the sector outlook, you operate in the mid and smaller container, container shipping segment with vessels below the 10,000 TU size. Now for, uh, for our listeners, uh, who may, they may not be aware that uh, this segment is the backbone of global trade carrying about 70% of the global containerized trade volume. So while the larger container ships in a way set the overall market trend, still there are important uh, differences among segments the bigger and the smaller and mid-sized segments in terms of chartering strategy, fleet profile, and order book. So if you can take us through, let's start with the demand side. How do you see demand developing in your segment? And what are the challenges or catalysts that uh, can impact uh, demand? Oof. Um, yeah, the demand side of things, it, it's super difficult to, to predict. Um, People much cleverer than us, or at least much cleverer than me, uh, spend a lot of time trying to figure out what's going to happen at the macroeconomic level, what's going to happen in terms of the ebbs and flows of globalization, regionalization, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So um, we, we focus on the, on, a, on the simpler side of things, which is the supply side. And the benefit is, as you've just said, really, uh, Nicholas, of, of mid-size and smaller ships. So the sub 10,000 TU ships upon which we focus is that they can be traded pretty much anywhere. So the assets themselves, the ships themselves are tremendously fungible, tremendously operationally flexible. And that means that neither we nor our charters have to take um, particularly long views or long bets on any particular trade lane because they can move the assets between pretty much any trade lane. So that's that's one, I suppose, strand to our strategy, making sure that our fleet is sufficiently attractive and remains super flexible. Um, and then the other sort of comes back to a point that, that Ian made at the very outset, which is contract cover. Um, you know, a, a big part of our business, a principal plank of our business is forward visibility on, on cash flows. And uh, the idea is, is to try to maintain that forward visibility. So at the moment it's, it's 2.3 years forward visibility and 2 billion of cash flows. We try to keep it at more or less that level, uh, which once again means that we are insulated to the short-term ebbs and flows of particular markets. And there's time for our assets to be reallocated by the charterers into whichever trades uh, make most sense for them. So sorry, no, no answer for you on the demand front, but um, flexibility and contracted cash flows, uh, you know, from, from our perspective, from our business model perspective. But Thomas, staying for a minute on the supply side, uh, the overall concern is the total order, order book uh, for the container market, but uh, it seems that most of the volume, most of the order book 
is on the larger vessels. So what is exactly the situation in the segments that you operate? The yeah. Yes. Um, let me try and remember the numbers. So the, the, the order book to fleet ratio overall across the entire fleet is, is currently, I think, 29%, between 29 and 30%. However, um, it's very, very heavily weighted towards the big ships, by which I mean those larger than the 10,000 ships, that, the 10,000 TU ships that mark the upper end of you know, the market in which we compete. If you look at 10,000 TU and below, the uh, order book to fleet ratio is roughly 14, 14%. So, I mean, that's still larger than we would like, frankly, but it's substantially more digestible. Than, um, than, than the overall order book or certainly the big, the big ship order book. And the other thing is um, that mid-size and smaller ships um, have been largely underinvested um, over the course of the last decade or so, pretty much actually since the, the global financial crisis. And as a result, mid-size and smaller um, ship segments tend to be aging ship segments. So an exercise that we we have performed is is figuring out okay well what happens if all of the ships that have had their lives extended as a result of the super hot um covid fueled earnings uh, bonanza of the last couple of years what happens if every ship when it hits its its 25 year special survey which point you know an owner has to decide whether or not they're going to invest in keeping that ship on the water what happens if they're scrapped out and the result is this that if you look at the sub 10,000 te order book our section of the fleet again you scrap out every ship as it hits 25 years which i recognize is an extreme and rather academic exercise but it's helpful i think to think in these terms um, you get net fleet growth between now and 2026 of just 1.4%, not 1.4% per year, but 1.4% total. So that gives us at least some comfort that there's room to right size the peer group uh, in the event that um, demand is, is lackluster um, over the next few years, which clearly we, we hope is not going to be the case. But if it is, once again, consistent with our rather conservative business model, we think there's room to right-size the uh, the peer group within which we're competing. I think another element that uh, can have impact on uh, on the fleet, uh, on the supply side, and obviously on the demand-supply balance, is slow skimming. And yeah. uh, the uh, European Union emission trading system that is coming, uh, coming up may have an impact on that. What are your thoughts on this? Uh, I well, I think that's a that's a good point. It's it's a sort of multi-billion dollar point or multi-billion euro point, I think. But what I would say is this: um, the IMOs regulations, CII and EEXI, which affect the global fleet, um, have already and and there's no dollars attached to these regulations, uh, but they're already prompting um, a slowdown in the global fleet. So you know, if I, I realize that we only own 68 ships. Uh, and, and as a result, that's not indicative of what the really big ships might be doing, but it may be a reasonable proxy for what's going on in the liquid charter market in which we participate. We've seen our ships slow down by between 8 and 10% over the first six months of this year. And that's before EU ETS, which you referenced, which for, for your listeners' benefit, many I'm sure already know this, but, but just to make it clear, um, it's 
um, a regulation which is going to be introduced by the European Union uh, from January the 1st of 2024. Um, it's a cap and trade um, uh, regulation. Uh, ETS is the emissions trading system, which has been around for other industries for a long time, but shipping is being folded in uh, from January 1st of, of, of next year. And for all ships that emit um, carbon dioxide within the EU jurisdiction, uh, you have to buy, for each ton of carbon dioxide emitted, you have to buy one EUA. And the cost of an EUA, which is a tradable instrument, hence cap and trade, is between 80 and 100 euros at the moment. It's, it's quite a volatile market, but that's broadly indicative of, of where it is. So there's a very real economic incentive for um, the players in the space to reduce their emissions. Now, our understanding is that um, EUAs ultimately will um, flow through to the charterers, our customers, because they're the parties who provide the fuel, and ultimately they will have to flow through the, um, the, the costs of those EUAs to the consumer. But nevertheless, there is a strong economic incentive to reduce emissions. Now, over the long term, that will be through the introduction of, of cleaner fuels, um, less carbon intensive fuels. But in the near term, the most efficient way to reduce carbon dioxide emissions is to slow ships down um, because there's, an, there's a, a sort of lo logarithmic relationship between speed and fuel consumption. So if you slow a ship down a little bit, you get a disproportionately large saving in fuel consumption. And then as a result, a disproportionately large saving in emissions. So we think um, that the, the incentive to continue to slow the fleet is likely to be further promoted by the implementation of EU ETS. That's, that's our take anyway. We'll have to see. Well, I'd like to thank you very if, much. If I, if, if, if I can just add, Nicholas, to, to, yeah. to that linking what Tom's just said with the supply side growth. Um, slow steaming, increased slow steaming absorbs capacity. Tom illustrated that the growth in the sub 10,000 TU fleet could be could be relatively modest if um, uh, all the old ships are scrapped out. Um, and that modest increase of 1.4% or whatever it was over the next three years could easily be completely offset by the effect of increased slow steaming, just as an illustration. Um, yeah. So again, that's one of the reasons why we focus on the sub 10,000 TU sector, the, the supply side, we can't do anything about demand, um, but the supply side dynamics look um, reasonably positive going forward. Yeah, I, I, and just actually to, to add to that, I mean, as, <laughs> that's pretty much the key point, um, as Ian said, um, slowing ships down absorbs capacity. And actually, to, to illustrate, if you, if you reduce the average operating speed of the global fleet by one nautical mile per hour, which is one knot, um, it's the same as taking out roughly six to seven percent of effective capacity, effective supply. So it's it's a very significant um, lever. And, and the other thing on, on a sort of, in a way, less economic and more ecological front is that the very fact that there may be surplus capacity allows the fleet to be slowed down. If there were not that headroom, 
the notion of slowing down simply wouldn't be a viable option anyway. So in, in a way, perhaps we're finding ourselves in a happy situation, both economically and ecologically, where there's an incentive to slow the, the, the fleet down. And fortunately, there is some slack in the system which allows the slowing down of the fleet. Very interesting. We'll see. Well, I'd like to thank you. It's been a, a particularly interesting and insightful discussion. We covered a, a lot of topics. Uh, and we are now coming to the end of our discussion. Um, any closing remarks that uh, you would like to share with us? Um, no, but apart from thanking you again, Nicholas, for the opportunity. Uh, we, you know, we've, we've, we've covered, as you say, a, a lot of ground. Um, but you know, in summary, Global Ship Lease, 68 container ships all let out on mainly multi-year uh, time charters. Um, we focus just on container ships. Uh, we, we focus very much on cash flow visibility, $2 billion of revenue spread out over the next 2.3 years, covers debt service, covers um, uh, dividends, uh, covers some opportunistic stock buybacks, covers CapEx, et cetera, et cetera. We have a dynamic uh, capital allocation policy, uh, depending on what's going on at the, at the, at, at the time. Uh, we have a prudent balance sheet uh, and, and we have a prudent and I'd like to think proven management team. Well, thank you very, very much. Uh, it's been a pleasure discussing with you. I am, again, Nicholas Bornos of Capital Inc. And we had the privilege to discuss today with uh, Ian Weber, uh, Thomas Lister and Tarsus Charopoulos, the senior management team of uh, Global uh, Ship Lease. Thank you very, very much. And I hope you uh, will have Thank the chance to uh, enjoy the rest of August and take some time off. You too. <laughs> Thank, you. Thank you very you much. Too. You too. Thank you.